morning. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, Dave. Did we announce that the bylaws committee will be meeting in the church uh, office? Thank you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just hold your place. I'll be reading from Ephesians in uh, just a moment. But for now, our main text for the morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we know that earth is not our home, that we have not come, you have not made us, you have not come, you have not died, so that earth might be our heaven. Earth is passing away, our bodies are passing away. And we understand, Lord, help us at least to understand, to remind us that there is a heaven that is coming. But nevertheless, Lord, we also want to be reminded of the many gifts that you've given to us now as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and have been regenerated by the Spirit whom you sent to live in us. Your word tells us that behold, if any man, woman, child be in Christ, that that person is a new creation at that moment. That we become new creatures, we are adopted into your kingdom, we are adopted into your family, brought into your kingdom. But Lord, help us to understand now that in this life, the gifts that you have given to us now are only temporary, they are partial, but we await that moment where what is temporary, what is partial, will be complete when you return, Lord Jesus. Help us to strike that balance, to understand what it is you've called us to do in this time between the times, and we eagerly look forward to your second coming. When you do not come as a babe, but as a conquering king, savior of the world, we praise you, Jesus. Amen. We've been looking at the first three chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be just reading through the first five chapters together. And we're seeing a, uh, an important theme develop, a theme really born out of a dysfunctional church. My father-in-law and I have this ongoing conversation about learning from other people's mistakes. He was talking about how in his life, through many observations of watching just people make mistakes, that he has learned what not to do. And that's a very valuable thing. Um, I'm a little bit stubborn. And uh, I've explained to him that I'm on a woodworking journey that's all my own. And I'm trying to learn all these things on my own. And that I need to make the mistakes so that I understand how to not do that and why you don't do it. Recently, I bought a beautiful hand plane. Uh, a hand plane. It's a number five jack plane. And you take it. It's got a beautiful big razor blade, and it sticks down in. You lock it into the frog. There's a, a wooden piece here and a handle, like a handle on a gun. And you slide it across the wood, and it brings off these very, very thin shavings. And it's a beautiful tool. The tool cost me, I believe, over $200. It's just one hand plane. And I bought this, and I was so excited. And I had watched a couple videos on it. And I had put together the wood and, uh, for a cutting board. And I noticed that several of the pieces were too high. So I have this new hand plane. And I can drag the hand plane over the wood. And it's going to come right off. It's going to be smooth. And it's going to look beautiful. Well, 
multiple things happened. The first thing I noticed was that the bench was not strong enough and was not opposing opposite my force. So I was pushing and the whole bench was moving along with the piece. Now, the piece was, I had taken a, you know, I had taken clamps and clamped it down and I'm moving it and the bench was on wheels. It was scooting all over the floor. Several of you are shaking your head like, idiot, I could have told you. Yeah, but follow the story. The point is, I, I didn't want you to tell me. I wanted to learn for myself. Well, I'm pretty sure I've done serious damage to my left shoulder because of that. And I'm a man, so, you know, you don't go to the hospital. No, I'm fine, honey. <laughs> Nothing wrong with my shoulder. Start running like this, you know. So, as I'm doing it, though, I'm noticing that the hand plane is popping up. It's like that. And they're, they're just grinding the wood. It's actually destroying the wood. And this is expensive wood. It's purple heart and it's maple. Those are deciduous trees. That means they, they are the trees that grow with leaves. They're not soft. It's not soft pine uh, like conical trees that you can get many trees. All the hardwood that you buy from Home Depot is like pine. It's cheap. You can get a lot of it. It's great. And it's super soft. But this is expensive wood and you have to go to... There's like one or two places in South Florida that sell it. And of course, they're either way up north or way down south, as all things are. And I'm destroying this wood and my shoulder. So, I was humbled enough to go to YouTube and figure out what I was doing wrong. So I grabbed my hand plane and I went into my bed. My wife loves that. When you sit in bed with a big old oily, rusty, dirty hand plane in bed. And you're sitting there watching it. This really happened. I'm sitting there watching it. And I'm, I'm watching Rob Cosman, an expert woodsman, uh, a woodcrafter, carpenter, tell me how to take it apart. And I take it apart. And I put it back together. And I realized I had the blade in backwards. It was absolutely miserable to have that blade in backwards. Destroyed the piece of wood, destroyed my shoulder. It was terrible. And the blade had to be sharpened, resharpened, like I had to do a lot of work on it. I had to go back to that, 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 that sharpener. I had to buy other pieces to fix this problem. I had made a huge mess of this piece. You know, it could have just been avoided had I known what I was doing and done it right at the beginning. So I got it, I sharpened it up, and I put the plane back together. And last night, my workbench is finally done. Got a couple little things I need to finish on it. So I went over to that hand plane, this heavy workbench that I rebuilt. I built my own. It's big, it's thick, it's strong, and it's not going anywhere. Probably weighs 300 pounds. It's a big, heavy piece. And I took that hand plane that I had fixed, that I had sharpened, and I put it down on that table, and I ran it through, and it was the best feeling. This beautiful piece of wood came off, and there were shavings. And I was calling the family in to watch me do it. Fam, come here. I offered my mother-in-law to do it. I said, you want to try? No. Not, I don't have time for that. You know, you know how she is. And I'm, I'm just shaving. And they're in time. You know, soon the shavings from the wood were up around my neck. And yeah, this is great. It's the best thing ever. There's no more bench top left. I was shaving so much. It was a wonderful experience. Because things were in the right order. When the church is not in the right order, it's miserable. I talk to people all the time who tell me that the reason that they don't go to church anymore is because the church is not in order. They say it like this, I've been hurt by the church. 
Now, that may be true. I think a lot of times it is. And I think a lot of times it's because of disorder. There's also that excuse. God will not, of course, allow you to use that as an excuse to not serve him, to not be a part of a church. There are good churches. And, and there are no perfect churches, but there are more pure churches. There are better churches that are doing it better, that are more pure. And doing what better? They're obeying better. But what we hear so many times is that I go to church and I, I can't listen to the pastor because the pastor doesn't preach the truth. And I, I know what you're going through. I know what that's been like. We want to have real sympathy because the church is out of order. And when the church is out of order, it can cause great damage. We have two extremes. One extreme, we have the Corinthian church. And we can learn from their example this morning. And, and the past weeks, we can read through these chapters. And we can, as a church, as the Northwest Baptist Church, learn from their example. We can. And we have a way to go, the right way to go, a, a north on our compass. We can look at the bad things that Corinth is doing and not do those things. But that's not enough to not simply not do the wrong thing. We actually have to do the right thing in the absence of not doing the wrong thing. Paul gives us an, a vision of what the church ought to look like when it's doing the right thing. And in Ephesians 4 he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, so he's telling Christians, you've been called to be Christians, now walk in a manner that's consistent with what your calling is. That you've been called to be children of God, now you should live like children of God in the church. And he says, with all humility and gentleness, the, the first thing that Paul finds is humility. We ought to be humble, not proud, not pride. When we look at Corinth in just a moment, we're going to see it's filled with pride. Pride is the, the major issue. It's the, the pride of, I follow one group, I follow one pastor, I go to one church. I'm more important. I'm more Christian. They're not united. And then it says with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Without going into full detail on that chapter, the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace should be the goal of our body, our church. The unity, that doesn't mean uniformity, it means unity, it means we're together, even though we're not identical. Uh, even though we have different roles, we're together. How? We, we, have, we share the same bond. What's that bond? That bond, is it... We are all saved by the body and blood of Christ. So every person in here today, man and woman, black and white, Trinidadian and Irish. I don't know why I came up with those two, but all of us share the bond of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when there's disunity in the body... When there's fighting, when there's pride, when there's harshness, we're not reflecting Christ and the covenant that we have been committed to. We're not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So, this is the ideal. And Paul goes down the list in this particular passage later on and he, he talks about the gifts that God has given to the church... And just in particular, the gifts are not necessarily, the, they're not the, the spiritual gifts, they're, they're men. He says God gave these as gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body to strengthen us. What did he give to us? He says they're to be given to us for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And you won't attain that until death. So you will never know enough, have enough unity as a Christian to not be a part of a local church and under the leadership of pastors. Never. This is not a program. The purpose for the church, God has given leaders to lead God's people from the moment of their salvation to their death. And then he tells what those men are and what they're to do. They're shepherds, they're evangelists, they're preachers. And he gave them to us that we might all be built up. That's the ideal. Tragically, tragically, not every church wants this. So we look at our verse, our section, our passage this morning. We've been following the argument in 1 Corinthians thus far. There's divisions in the church. People are, they're, they're breaking off into factions and one is following this leader, another group is following this leader, another group. It's, it's kind of like the way that we divide politically, right? I have heard people recently say that if you voted for Trump, you, you're not my friend anymore. Or if you voted for Hillary, you're not my friend anymore. Of course, that's nasty, raw politics, right? It should never permeate the church. And that was what was happening. Oh, if you follow that, Pastor, you and I, we don't jive together. And so these rivalries are coming in, and what Paul has been urging them to do is pay attention to the message and make the message ultimate and make the messenger not just secondary, but see that the messenger is a steward or is a servant, a co-laborer with God. They have been given to you by God. And you are not to make much of the messenger, you are to make much of the message. You were not saved by a man, you were saved by the message. It is the word of God that saves you. If your pastor dies, if your pastor leaves, that should not, it cannot, it must not, and it will not in the lives of real Christians be the end of their Christian life. It is the message. So, when we begin the process of looking for churches, and, and in this case, in a couple uh, years, looking for pastors, you, you don't have to make it about giftedness. You can make it about the message. Does the man faithfully preach the message? And Paul says, when, when you're... Fighting over men still, you're acting like infants in Christ. And it's time to grow up. In chapter 4, now, where we find ourselves, Paul is going to tell us how we should regard our leaders. How we should think about our pastors, our elders, our overseers. One in the same word. They are the same word. Elders are pastors. They're different words, but one and the same thing. Pastors and elders and overseers are all, all, all the same. Now, let's look at the chapter. Chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. And stewards of the mystery of God. The word there, servant, and when it's used together with steward, means someone who manages a household. Not, not necessarily a home, but a household. In antiquity, it was usually a, a, a slave, actually. It would be someone who, who had been tr entrusted with the family's possessions... Uh, most of the time, this is something we don't often think about, but in those days, slaves were actually more educated than their masters. Uh, they did the handling of their books. Um, the most intellectual, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, the most intellectual or at least the best Greek that we have in the New Testament was written by Luke. 
Luke has actually written more in volume than anyone else in the New Testament. And his Greek is beautiful. It is high. It is elevated Greek. And it's one of the reasons why scholars believe that Luke was quite possibly an ex-slave or a freed servant, a freed slave. Now, of course, slavery is not, it's different in those days than it was in the North American colonies and in the Caribbean. It wasn't based on race. Nevertheless, Paul is saying we are simply servants of a master's home. And what we are to do is to rightly handle what he has given us. He has put with us his most prized possession for the church today. And what is that thing? Is it the building? Is it the treasury? The, the, the finances, in other words. Is it the children's program? Is it pews? Is it the location? Maybe it's the music. Make sure that the music is right. Is, maybe it's that, but is that what God tells Paul? No, he tells Paul, or Paul tells us, that the servants, the ones who manage God's household, are to take care of God's most precious possession for the church, which is the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? Well, we've already seen the mysteries of God is not some kind of esoteric secret, but it is the gospel revealed through the ages, now revealed in Christ, and preached. And to those who are spirit-filled, they understand the mysteries of God and live by those mysteries. It is nothing more than the gospel. The difference between those who are uh, understanding the gospel and those who don't is whether or not they have the spirit. The same content is audibly preached. There is no secret content. The same content is preached. It is the heart that has been given to us by God's spirit. So Paul is simply saying this. We, how should you regard your pastors? He's good looking. He's funny. The church is nice. He manages money well. No. Does he faithfully care for and preach God's word the way God intends him to preach it? That's, that's what he's saying. And so we, a lot of times we, we want to, to look for our pastors to be stewards of everything but the word of God. Because, in a dysfunctional way, we have itching ears and we're looking for the right man to scratch it. What we want to hear is falsehood because it makes us feel good. So, Paul goes on. He says here, verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not that they be found productive. Not that they explode the church. Not that they balance the budget. But that they be found faithful. What? Faithful to the mysteries of God. What God wants a pastor to be is first and foremost a steward of the word. There should be in every church a leader, a man who exemplifies and men who exemplify what all of us should be as Christians as we learn the word of God. There ought to be someone, a leader, who we can trust to go to to tell us what God's word says, not what we want to hear. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul is not saying that your judgment matters a little. He says that your judgment relative to the judge of the universe is insignificant. In other words, what the people think about a pastor is irrelevant to what God thinks about a pastor. I was reading D.A. Carson this week, and I also watched a lecture that he gave 
It was a really interesting lecture, and he said something that uh, really stuck with me. He said this. He said, the most remarkable thing about what God desires his leaders to be is how unremarkable the qualifications are. Uh, we, should, we should have elders in the church. This is a big one I'm hearing now. A lot of, we should have elders. Yeah, okay, o okay. Okay, turn to 1 Timothy 3.1. Turn there really quickly. 1 Timothy 3.1. It's a couple, couple uh, books over. Now listen to what Paul says. This saying is trust, trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The word overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder and the word shepherd and the word bishop. They're not a special rank or hierarchy. They're all the same. So the first thing you need to grasp, if you want elders, is that you all, all who are part of the elders, are going to all have to meet these qualifications, and they're going to have to all be pastors. Pastors. All of you who want to be elders. But Paul says, that's good, you should desire it. We, also, we should desire this. If you desire it, you desire something noble. Now, what are the qualifications? Oh, he's got to be really smart. He's got to have a master's degree. Uh, he has got to have uh, graduated from seminary. I, I know this because when you start to apply for jobs, you read all the list of what they want in their pastor. They want him to have a four-year degree. They want him to have a master's degree. Uh, they want to make sure that he has five years of experience. Actually, none of the qualifications that God puts here. Look at what he says. An overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? He must be an example in belief and in behavior. Usually that's enough to end the conversation about elders. And you know what I told one young man one day? I won't tell you who he is because he's here, but I told him this. I said, he'll, he'll confess who he is. I said, Johan, <laughs> when I called Johan to, to be an elder in our church, I said to him, Johan, he said, you know, man, that is, that is a high calling. And as well he should. Remember, James says not many of you should, should rush to be teachers because teachers will be judged more harshly. He understood that. Good job. But he was giving me all these excuses, and I said to him, you know, Johan, just so you know, don't think that because you're, you may not be an elder, that you don't have to follow all of these and that you're excused, because the elder is simply to be the template for the Christian life for everyone else. He said, crap! All right. The, he must be the husband of one wife. That doesn't mean that he has to be married. It just means that he can't be a philanderer. Oh, but he preaches real good. Is he unfaithful to his spouse? It doesn't matter then. And we go to churches where the pastor has slept with people in the church. And the church in a year brings him back. Why? Because he's the only man who can preach. But God won't take him. You're disqualified. You can't be sexually immoral and be a leader. If you saw me coming out of the strip club last night, why would you be here today listening to me tell you how to live your life? You wouldn't. He has to be the husband of one wife. He has to be a godly husband. He has to be sober-minded. That means sober-minded means he's reasonable. He cannot be unreasonable. You say it means he can never drink. No, because he deals with that in the next one. He has to be self-controlled. He has to have control over his life. He has to be respectable. The people respect him for the right reasons. He has to be hospitable, able to teach. That's the one unique difference between elders and deacons. An elder has to be able to teach. Why? Because elders are pastors. 
He cannot be a drunkard. Now, this does not mean, oh, I don't want to be an elder because I want to get drunk. No, that's forbidden for you too. He cannot be a recent convert. He must manage his own household well. He cannot be quarrelsome. He cannot be violent. He must be gentle, not a lover of money. Oh my gosh, that would disqualify every pastor in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. For if someone does not, keeping his children submissive. Claire, do you hear that? Was, is Claire here? You have to be submissive to daddy. And she is. She's a good girl. By the way, it doesn't mean that children can't be children. Don't ask me how I know. If you can't manage your own house, how can you care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. That's actually the second qualification uh, that's unique to being leaders. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that may, he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, well thought of by outsiders mean he can't have it all together in the church and cheat on his taxes. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean all of these other things. I just, I don't care about the laws of the land. Okay, so Paul says this is how you ought to regard us. This is what a Christian leader should look like. It is to be remarkably unremarkable, but faithful to God. Paul says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, Paul has not all of a sudden sidetracked the talk into some talk about judgment and do not judge others. I heard Carson say this week, that's probably the most well-known verse. It's probably more, Matthew 7 is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible today, even more than John 3.16. Do not judge lest you be judged, which is your way of saying, you don't have a right to tell me what I'm doing is sin. But Paul's not saying that. Paul's simply saying, your judgment actually, actually, sin. It has both a positive or a negative and a positive connotation. Those of you who say you follow Cephas and not Paul, that's the negative. But those of you who say you follow Paul and not Cephas, that's the positive. And Paul forbids both. Don't judge me. God will judge me as faithful. What you think about me, whether it is that I'm the greatest pastor you've ever had, or whether it is that I'm the worst, it doesn't matter. Paul says, why? Because ultimately what matters is whether or not God says to me on that day, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You know, this one right here, if the Bible could, could have had a fist come out of it and punch me in the nose, it would have, this would have been the verse. Stop worrying about whether or not you're quitted by men. You know what you preached. You know what you did. The Lord will acquit you. Paul is not saying we should not scrutinize ourselves, only that the judgment that matters is God's, not man's. You ought to desire a preacher who stands in the fear of the Lord. So much so that he'll tell you you're a sinner on your way to hell because he's afraid that God will judge him if he doesn't. Stop taking your body, your money, your mind, your heart to pastors who tell you what your itchy ears want to be scratched. Oh, if you just, if you just, oh, and then God is there and he will bless you. And blah, 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 blah. 
In just a moment, you're going to see what God did to his apostles. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Now, what he says here about going beyond is not necessarily adding to the word of God. He is saying, don't go beyond the message and focus on the messenger or the church. If you're, if you're looking for a church, if you're looking for a pastor, it's the message. Do you preach the message? Not are you skinny? Not are, do you have abs? Not can you, not can you lead a school? Because you're still going to have one when I'm gone. It's are you faithful to the message? Paul says, don't go beyond it. Don't make it about men. Make it about the message. For who sees anything different in you? Now he's, he's going to chide them. He's going to get after them. I don't see anything different in you. Paul is saying, I am well within my right to say, you've gone beyond the message, the message and focus on the messenger because that's all I see. No one sees anything different in you, he says to the Corinthian church. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, he's not talking about material possessions. He's not talking about material possessions. He is talking about the, revel the revelation of the mysteries of God. It was not a man who brought those to you. It was God. Paul said last week, I sowed, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Where, what is the reception then? The reception is God who's giving you that growth. And if it's Paul today, and it's Apollos tomorrow, ultimately, all of your growth will be produced by God, not by men. He says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if then you received it by a gift... Why are you acting like it's based upon the, the, the gifts of men? Why are you acting as if it is based in men and in human ingenuity? You received it by God. Now he, now he is actually going to mock them. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share and rule with you. Paul is saying you have an unhealthy living in this gospel. You think you have everything now. now any messenger that teaches you you can have your best life now is lying. And I chose that phrase for a reason. Someone asked me this morning, they were talking to me about Charlotte, how nice Charlotte was. And I, I said, yeah, I love it. And I, I just told that person, I said, you know, Stephanie and I don't believe Charlotte's our heaven on earth. You know, what we're going to find in Charlotte is more sinners. They're just going to look different. They may talk, they may talk different. But there's sinners there just like there's sinners here in Miami. But there's no heaven on earth. If you win the lottery, you're still, all you are is now a rich sinner. In fact, Jesus says it's more, it's, it's impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says. Because he says, uh, can you fit a camel into the eye of a needle? You say, so then I, gotta, I can't be rich? No, with God, all things are possible. With God, not men and money. Do you understand that was the teaching. The focus is on God, not on money, not on man, not on land, not on where you live. It is on him. Why are you boasting as if you have it all? You don't. You received it from God. Why are you boasting like you did it, like some man did it? You didn't. God did. And he's mocking them. 
He says, you know what? Listen to what he says. For I think that God has exhibited, he says here, I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In other words, if you guys were in charge, what he's about to say about the apostles wouldn't be happening. Listen to what he says. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The metaphor that Paul is about to use is that of the, the, the conquered being placed in the middle of the Colosseum. To be killed by gladiators and devoured by wild animals. Everyone will watch. Everyone will cheer at the rule of the world destroying the flesh of God's apostles. And prophets, look at the prophets of the Old Testament. They never, you hear all these guys today, I'm Prophet John. I should not try that, let me just tell you. I'm Apostle Bob. I was watching one of these prophets when he was being interviewed by the IRS. True story. You can go home and watch it. And he was talking about this house that he needed and the suits that he needed. He was talking, the, the woman, I, now the woman, I don't know whether she's a believer or not, but I can tell you this. If she wasn't and if that's her only, that's her only encounter with a Christian, oh boy. She says, Christian, she says to him, did you need Louis Vuitton suits? And he says, well, because I'm going to be on TV. And you have to look presentable. She said, yeah, but Louis Vuitton? John had camel's hair. A leather belt and he ate wild locusts and honey. Now, I'm not saying that crazy guy who looks dirty and unkept is preaching the truth. What I'm saying is that the message is hated by man. And if the message is preached correctly, so will the messenger. Jesus did say that. You will share that with the message. It's hated. I'm hated. So will you. And Paul says, we've become a spectacle. The whole world watches us. Even the angels in heaven see what's happening we're put on display. You think about how awful that would be. You might think you're the greatest failure in the world because everyone is watching you. Everyone, even the state has called you criminal and they're going to devour you and they're going to kill you. But it's at that moment where you are most like Christ. It was God. In the flesh, on the cross. And now, his apostles, his bishops, his elders look like Christ. They're serving and they're suffering. Paul says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. That's, that stinks. I wanted to say another word. It stinks. Can you imagine that? You, you don't, you, you, when's the last time somebody just reviled you, just destroyed you, and you just kept yourself. Not because you couldn't beat that person up, but because you did it for God's glory. Paul says that's what we do. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The metaphor there is we're the leftover dirty bath water. My children, they come home from the playground and we bathe them. And there's, there's the water and, and it's beautiful, it's crystal clear until they get in it. And when they get out, ooh, it's black. 
there's weird things floating around and you're like, was that on one of my child's bodies? Sure hope that's chocolate. You don't know what's in that water. Paul says, Paul says we're scum. We're the dirty film, the, 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 the refuse there, the word means like the trash. It's the dirty film left in the bathtub. And you got get the image. Paul is saying, you're making much about men, yet God carries us in and puts us on display in the whole world to simply be destroyed by men. Just like Christ Jesus. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Listen, listen. One of the things missionaries will do is they'll come in and in order to recruit missionaries, they will guilt you. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not here to make you ashamed. Yes, you're going to go home, you're going to have a turkey sandwich. Remember that Paul didn't have turkey sandwiches. He ate disgusting food. He was poorly dressed. He was homeless. You'll go to your own home. Thank the Lord for their suffering, which produced in you real faith. Paul says, but I don't tell you these things to make you feel ashamed. But what I do is I tell you these things to admonish you. What does that mean? It means to encourage you. Actually, Christians should never be guilted into serving, but they should be challenged. Guilt tears down, but challenge. There's sometimes the challenges are so big, the pastor wants me to witness. Okay, someone we were talking this morning in our Bible fellowship group, a great place to be discipled, by the way. If you want discipleship, no better place than to meet with us at 915 in that upper room. We're doing discipleship. But Jeff Harrison brought this up. He said, you know, we got to be... He, he used the word, we got to be uh, 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 outward, like outward directed. And he said, there are people in this church right now that we, sh we know need to be discipled. And we've got to go to them. And what I said was, okay, go. Right? All of us go. No, you don't have to convert. You don't have to sell your home today and go and live in a hut in Africa. If you want to, if God's calling you to do that, do it. But at the very least, at the very least, can you get to know the people in your church? Can you see, can, can you work at getting the speck out of your, or getting the plank out of your own eyes so that you can get the speck out of your brothers? Because what we have a lot of times in our churches is a bunch of blind people running into each other. And nobody wants to take it out. We just boast about it. Oh, I got a thing in my eye, and I'm never, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get this thing out of my eye, so I won't be able to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Dad, gum it, man. Dad, gum it. Get yourself right. Paul, Jesus didn't say, don't ever worry about the speck in your brother's eye. He said, just make sure before you start helping brothers get specks that you get beams out of yours. But he didn't say, don't get the beam out. Dummy, get it out. Stop wallowing in your sin. Grow up so that you might be a mature believer and that the church as a whole might grow. I don't write these things to make you feel ashamed. I'm challenging you. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. This is an important analogy. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. This is a very interesting section right here. Paul is saying to them, I share a special bond with you. I heard a roundtable discussion this week with Michael Horton, Tim Keller, and Matt Chandler. And they were talking about the role of a pastor. And they said at the end of the day, people still want their pastor. Paul's not saying, don't have a love and even a filial relationship with the pastor. If you go over to Ephesus, if you go over to Acts 20, and you see when, the, when, when Paul has to leave, 
There is sorrow. The elders are weeping. They are sad. Paul not only, Paul not only occupies a space as an apostle, but also as their father. He was the one who led them to the Lord, who gave them, who was the vehicle. Don't make much of him, but don't make nothing of him. Love and cherish your pastors. Hebrews 13 tells us, 13, 17, that you ought to do everything without grumbling so that those who are, who, those who are, are, are working for you, they ought to do everything without grumbling. That means the complaints and the pressures that you put on your pastors could be destroying them. You ought to love and uphold them and understand the job they do and appreciate them appropriately. My dad used to say the Southern Baptist mantra was, Lord, if you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. That ought not to be your goal when you call your next pastor. Do not make him moonlight. It's an awful way, says John Piper, to call a pastor and to mistreat that pastor and to not help him and his family. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This church has not done that to me. This church has loved me so much. And you're going to do it with your next one. Just listen. The warning that is echoing in the back of all of this is the simple warning. Do not go beyond what is written. Men will die, but God's word endures forever. When John Piper passes away, I will be profoundly sad. Like I was when R.C. Sproul passed away. Profoundly sad. Because when I, I don't know, but because when I was a young man and I didn't think that, I thought all Christians were stupid. I thought if you had to be a Christian, you had to be a dummy. And you had to talk nonsense. How come, the, how come this is this? Oh, just believe it. R.C. Sproul told me why. He was the voice in the wilderness for me. And when he died, I was profoundly sad. It meant so much to me. Your pastor should mean so much to you. It's okay to have that relationship. But why? They're not the end. It is because they point you beyond to the God, to the master. The master whose house they stewarded. You know, in fact, the relationship in ancient Greek society was one of this. It was the house person, it was the house servant who took the children to school, who bathed the children, who cared for the children. Now, the children didn't belong to the servant, but that doesn't mean they didn't have a relationship, a sweet, pure, beautiful relationship. But they're not the parents. Paul says, I am but a servant. And our relationship, yeah, we had, we had some great times. But don't lose sight. The message and the master are greater than the messenger. Now, he says, be imitators of me. You say, is that wrong? No, because in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he clarifies what he means. He says, imitate me. How? As I imitate Christ. You should look to your elders, those of you who are pressing for elders. Good, good, that's good. But remember, you are, you are essentially saying, like I as the pastor have to say, look at my life and do what I do because I am doing what Christ would have me do. That's what you're going to say. Be imitators of me, Paul says. Later on in the letter, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Why? You should follow your pastor. Uh, there was a church that we were in, Ninth and O Baptist Church, and the people, they were just like their pastor. The vast majority of them. is a big church. He was the sweetest man, Bill Cook. I love him so much. And the people were just like him. It took on their own, it, it had their own, like, uh, their own tendencies and their own ways. 
But what Bill Cook did that was so beautiful was every week he took us into the Bible and opened it up and made us walk away saying not how good was Bill Cook, but how great is our God. Now Paul says this. Ooh, here's the last part. You're not going to like this. If you want to leave, go ahead and leave now. Because this is the part you ain't going to like. You, boy, I've been getting some amens today. Let's see if you still amen now. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now, Paul, Paul has talked this beautiful, just, just got off the heels of saying I'm your father. But you know what fathers have to do with their children? They have to discipline them. That's the hard part. They have to discipline. Good discipline. Good discipline. Right discipline takes something out of the father and out of the child. Paul says, some of you are arrogant people. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Listen to me, church, your pastor must have the right to employ church discipline. Thank you, that one, two people who amended. I talk to Christians all the time. If I had a pastor come and tell me I was living in sin, I'd tell him right where to go and I'd leave that church and I'd never come back again. That's not what God says. Paul says they keep watch over your souls. I've heard people come, you're, you know, you're the shepherd. You know what shepherds carry? They carry a crook. Oh, here you are. You're the sheep and you're walking off. Bah! Bah! Sex before marriage is fine. And you're over here. And the shepherd comes to you and he pulls out his crook and he says, no, no, sheep, come back with the flock. The reason why you're not with us is because you're following sin. But I want you to come back in the flock, and I want the flock to be with you, and I want them to love on you and care for you. And that sheep goes, no! You don't have a right to tell me that, but that's a shepherd. And the shepherd's there to care for you. He has a, a crook, not a club. He's not going to beat you over the head. He's to but he is to make you his business. Hey, Bob, I haven't seen you, man. Where you been? Uh, just been around, man, you know. Been work schedules, crazy. Yeah, I know, man. I know that. I know how life can be. This is gentle. Hey, Bob, listen, I, I don't want you to lose sight of what really matters, what really matters in this life are the treasures in heaven, not the treasures that you store up on earth. Young man, hey, young men in this church, hey, young men, you know, you've been feeling my crook recently. And that's okay. I don't mind putting you on blast. I'm, you're going to be feeling my crook until January 13. You might feel it after it. Hey, young men, stop giving me excuses about why you can't be here. And I'm just going to knock you on that head. Time to grow up, young men. you got to be the leaders of this church when I leave. Get it together. Wolves are coming in, sheep's clothing. It's you now. Get up. Come on, young man. Stop playing video games. Come on, put them down. Let's go. Stop telling me you work on Wednesday. Get here. Get here. Go to your boss with chutzpah and say, I am not working on this day. I'm going to be a part of the church because I want to be a leader in the church. You guys don't like this part. But guess what? I don't care. God told me. In his word, that the only person I need to be worried about pleasing is him. He's going to judge me for what I'm telling you right now. Get off your lazy keister, young men, and get ready to lead this church. Stop with the excuses. You ought to be the first ones here every Sunday morning in BFG, every Sunday morning in church, every Wednesday evening, every time we meet for theology class. You ought to be the first ones here.
we have so many strong women in this church. You know what they want? You know what those women are telling me they want? They're strong. They're the ones who show up to theology class. But God has made the preaching and teaching for his men to be leaders the way he makes the husband to be the leader of the home. But my women keep showing up and keep supporting. And in tears, they're begging for their men to be men. To take responsibility. They don't want to preach. They want you to preach. Shame on you. Fathers who leave your mothers to raise children. It's not the mom's fault. It's your fault. Thank God she fills in where you have, rel have relinquished your authority. Shepherd's crook. Paul says... I'm going to come to you, those arrogant people who are talking arrogant things, but I'm going to see their power. Now he's going back to the analogy. He's saying these men who are talking, they're, they're talking wisely. They're saying nothing well. But let's look. Is there power? Are there changed lives? There aren't. Paul is planning on, to put it, put it in modern terms, putting these men on blast. He's saying you're selling a bill of goods. You are a snake oil salesman. You're saying you have wisdom, but look at their lives. You had wisdom. Their lives wouldn't look like that. The power of the word of God has real, real power in our lives. And Paul says, I'm going to go and I'm going to find these men and I'm going to find these churches. And I'm going to simply say, if you were really preaching the word of God, you're People wouldn't look like that because the word of God has power to convict and to change. This is the most fun I've ever had up here. Paul says, why? Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. Don't talk to me about programs, about church are you living holy lives? Are you remarkably unremarkable by worldly standards? The reason why those qualifications are given to elders is so that you, the church, might imitate the elders in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says those who think they're real pastors, we're going to see if there's real fruit in their people. And if there's not, there's the verdict. He says then and leaves them with a question, two questions. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul is not talking about a literal corporate spanking where he brings everybody up and whacks them with a rod. What Paul is talking about is this. Am I going to have to keep preaching like this to get your attention? Or can you not self-police yourselves in the body? Paul says, I want to come to you with love. Maybe the reason why your pastor yells so much is because you have yet to change. That's what Paul's doing in Corinth. He's not doing it in other churches. You say, but all churches are exactly alike. No, they are not. Read Revelation. Jesus goes down the list of seven churches, and he has different issues with some. Some he has no problem with. Some he has terrible problems with. There are no perfect churches. You're right, but there are more pure churches, and there are less pure churches. What do you desire to be? Are you going to be a little leaflet? Or are you going to be a tree? And the whole of North Miami and Miami knows because it comes into your branches and is nourished by your fruit. Do you want to be that sort of tree? God says, be firmly planted by the streams of the word. Psalm 1. Make the message the centerpiece of this church.
successful. God, your, your word is mighty, it is powerful. All that, we, all that we did here today was read your word, God. We just read your word. Your, your word's so awesome. And, and you do, no one here needs to wait till Sunday to get this. They can get this Monday through Friday, and then we can come together and celebrate together the word of God and the truth. Holy Spirit, come upon this church. Give them the desire. Give them the heart. Give them the transformation that only you can give. Amen.